Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back. So I have some very important information for you. Listen up, super important. Um, My book is available for pre-order right now on the Amazons. So you can go to Amazon. You can search for my name. The book is called The D Word, Making the Ultimate Decision About Your Marriage. And or you can follow the link in the show notes and you can pre-order my book. Now, um, we are going to try and figure out a way Um, other sort of options for buying because obviously if you share an Amazon account with the person um, that you are attempting to make this ultimate decision (laughs) about, um, you know, it might not be the safest um, or the smartest thing to purchase my book through Amazon uh, right now. So we are figuring that out. If you have your own Amazon account, and you want to pre-order my book, I would be so incredibly grateful. So here's the deal, guys. Pre-orders matter in the publishing industry. Like, they really matter. So I'm going to be doing a whole bunch of bonuses and exciting, fun things for people who pre-order, and you will be hearing about those very soon, and you will not be left out of them if you pre-order now as opposed to um, when I make those announcements. So if it's safe for you to do so and you want to pre-order my book, I would be so, as I said, forever and eternally grateful. Um, It's available for pre-order on Amazon right now. The D word, making the ultimate decision about your marriage. Okay. Thank you. Now, For today's episode, today I am incredibly honored to be joined by Dr. Emma Katz. She is a world-leading expert on coercive control. She is the author of the book, Coercive Control in Children's and Mothers' Lives. She has an incredible substack that is called Decoding Coercive Control with Dr. Emma Katz, which I highly recommend everybody uh, subscribe to. She is uh, an associate professor at Durham University. She is just incredible. Um, Her work has influenced policy and professional practice in the UK and globally. And as I said, incredibly honored to have her on the podcast today and to have this important conversation about coercive control. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Emma Katz. Dr. Emma Katz, thank you so much for coming on and having this really important conversation today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, I'm really excited about this. Um, I've been wanting to have you on for so long. And so I just really, I'm so grateful. Um, you are widely considered an expert in coercive control. You've written a really important um, sort of academic volume on it. Um, can you define for us what it is that we mean when we talk about coercive control? For me, coercive control involves the two elements that those two words indicate. There's the coercion and the control. So what we have is somebody who is being persistently controlling. They're not just being a bit controlling about some things. They're being very controlling about a number of key things, really infringing on the other person's standard personal liberties and freedoms, where they can go and who they can talk to and how they can express themselves. Um, and at the same time, they're backing this up with the threat of some sort of punishment if you don't comply. That's the coercion bit. So the punishment, if you don't comply, could be anything, but it's going to be something that you find really unpleasant and they know you find really unpleasant. And that's why it works as a punishment. So it might be hitting you, but it might not be because lots of coercive controllers don't hit at all. But it might be economically abusing you. It might be upsetting your children. It might be sexually coercing you. It might be making you suffer for not complying Days or even weeks or even months later, some of these coercive controllers are really long-term plotters. So the punishment may not be immediate, but they'll punish you for it at some point down the line. So it's so much more than just simply being controlling towards somebody. It's control, but backed up with the threat of some sort of really awful punishment if you don't comply with them. There is the more overt, right? Like this is your punishment. But then there's far more covert ways of doing this that I think are so much more confusing to people. I know that's sort of the way that it was for me, where like, if I Googled, like, what is, you know, emotional abuse or anything like that, the examples that I got were so overt that I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm not being abused. I just feel terrible. I'm just always confused. I'm all right. And so there are people who are far more covert in this, in their sort of machinations, right? Can you give some examples of that or what that might look like or how you would know if that's what you're experiencing? I think if you're at the point where you're looking up on the internet, am I being abused? Is this coercive control? I can probably 99% guarantee that, that you are being abused and it is coercive control because people who are not being abused don't look that up on the internet. Um, it really is a sign that something is very, very wrong. Yeah, the abuse can be really subtle. Perpetrators are so clever at disguising their abuse, um, making it seem reasonable, and always making you feel that it's your fault. So what they'll do is something like, if you want to go and see your friends or your parents like a, a normal adult could do, they will start to make you feel guilty for it. They'll start to make it seem as though it's a sign of disloyalty to them, lack of commitment to them, that you don't care about them, that, that if you cared about them, you would stay with them and you wouldn't see other people who are important to you. And so you end up feeling like you're the terrible, unreasonable person because you want to do what normal adults can do. Yeah, right. it's very subtle like that sometimes. Or they'll have a crisis. 
right? They'll have a they'll crisis. have a crisis. Yeah, they, they suddenly when you're they trying to you. go out, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Every time every time you go away for a weekend, every time you go out, they have some sort of crisis. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So so they're often setting up this idea that they can't live without you. They can't manage without you um, to make you feel that you're obligated to look after them. And then but looking after them isn't like looking after a normal person. It's so much worse than that. It's it's not reciprocal. They don't look after you in return. They don't care about your feelings. If you were in a crisis, they wouldn't care. Um, So. They make you feel as though you're a bad person for not acceding to all their demands, but then their demands are not reasonable and their behavior isn't mutual. You say, and I think this is so true, but I wonder how we might um, break this down. You say this is a global health crisis. Yeah. So what, what do you mean by that? And how do we sort of reckon with that? Cause I, I mean, Clearly, we're not on a global scale really reckoning with this, right? Um, But what do you mean when you say it's a global health crisis? Perpetrators um, seem to follow a strikingly common core playbook. And although they might vary in their tactics a little bit, they're all kind of following the same playbook. I mean, victims and survivors often say it's like their perpetrator has been handed a manual of how to abuse and they're following that manual. Um, so there's obviously something about the way we're living as a society that a significant percentage of people, the people who are abusers, are learning how to abuse. They're getting away with their abuse. They're carrying out their abuse over and over again. And our societies are letting that happen, not stopping it, not preventing it. Uh, the number of perpetrators who are really held to account for what they've done is really small. Um, so they're just running rampant and abuse does seem to be pretty similar, whether you're in, you know, Britain or the United States or in India or in Nigeria or wherever you are, the abusers do tend to follow quite a common set of, um, tactics and techniques that they use. So that makes it global. Of course, there are regional variations and and it kind of, some of the abuse takes on different meanings in different cultures. But I've heard abuse survivors from India and from Nigeria and from many different parts of the world who all have quite similar accounts to the ones I hear in Britain and the US and Australia. So it's very global. Um, it's, it's a societal level problem. I think every victim and survivor kind of thinks that it's an individual problem, that it's their marriage problem, that it's their divorce problem, that it's something that's quite unique to them. But um, sometimes they realise that actually there are so many thousands of other people who've been through the same thing and there is this commonality across all people's experiences. And I think when you realise that, you can start to broaden it out and realise it wasn't actually about you you did nothing wrong you were caught up in this in this much larger societal problem um and what i would say also is that um that in terms of health i mean why is this a global health crisis 
because domestic abuse is absolutely appallingly bad for people's health. It it really does terrible things to the health of adult victims and child victims, uh, to their physical health and their mental health. So it is a health crisis in that in that sense. There's also sorts of um, research suggesting that a lot of um, autoimmune right because when you're being when your system is being flooded with that much that many stress hormones all the time right it affects your autoimmune system um i know i had uh i had chronic back pain for most of my marriage and as soon as i got out it miraculously disappeared right so there's all sorts of this this stress that we're holding on to you know one of the things that you talk about in your substack um is about I think it was in your subsect. Now, now I'm not. I'm not finding it. But like, who this, who this, um, who abuse impacts? Right. That that it's not. It can happen to anyone. It happens to everyone. Right. All socioeconomic. Right. And that there's nothing wrong with you. That you are. Can you sort of talk about this? Like being a victim doesn't say anything mm-hmm. about you or who you are. Absolutely. So I've just written a Substack about this, actually. It came out yesterday. Uh, So I'm on Substack under Decoding Coercive Control with Dr. Emma Katz. So if you want to look me up there, um, I'd love to have you as a subscriber. Um, And what I was saying was that, yes, abuse can affect anyone across any socioeconomic group. Um, I talk to a lot of survivors who are, you know, who are wealthy, who are professional, who are highly educated, you know, and whose other halves are similarly wealthy, educated. Uh, Some of their other halves are are literally world-leading figures who are known in multiple countries, which is quite scary. This can definitely strike amongst the, 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 the wealthiest people, you know, in our countries. Um, and at the same time, it can, it can occur in, in, you know, in households that are really struggling for money and, and have very little. So it really can strike anywhere. Women are much more likely to be coercively controlled than men, but a small percentage of coercive control victims who are adults are men, but the great majority of them are women. And there's so much data showing that that is the case. So this is definitely not a sort of 50-50 split between women and men. Um, But of course, uh, children um, are affected by the coercive control too. And those children are both boys and girls. So it's important to remember that and not to kind of, I I always feel it's important to make sure that we're including boys in this conversation, like the boys of fathers who are coercively controlling or much more rarely mothers. Um, But in terms of um, there being nothing wrong with victims. I say this at every opportunity because victims and survivors often get told that they must have done something wrong, that maybe they were codependent or they had weak boundaries or they didn't see red flags, blah, blah, blah. And actually, as an abuse expert, I, I would say none of that is true. Um Perpetrators really vary in what they look for in a person. So some perpetrators um, are looking for someone who they perceive to be really successful, really confident, really strong, and someone who had a happy childhood. And they look for that kind of person. And I, I spoke to a mother once and she said, I, I was all those things. I was confident. I had loads of friends. I had a happy childhood. She said, I think he picked me for the pleasure of taking someone like me and breaking them down. And I've always remembered her saying that. I thought that was so important to hang on to that. 
And yeah. some perpetrators look for people at really vulnerable moments in their lives. And they look for people who have been mistreated as children. So what perpetrators are looking for in this really creepy, awful way in the people that they want to target um, really does vary. So whoever, I know we want to think, I know we want to think, I'm the kind of person who is safe from this. I know we want to think that because it's scary, right? But the truth is there is no kind of person who is safe from this. I wouldn't consider myself safe from this, even though I spend all day every day writing about it and talking about it. Um, there's no one who's safe from this. And therefore, there is nothing that victims are doing. It's nothing about who they are or what they were doing that made them victims. I think it's really just a numbers game. There are a, a lot of abusers in our society. Again, we don't want to really think about that, but I think it is true. We wouldn't have the numbers of, of domestic violence and rape victims and sexual harassment victims and all of that if there weren't a lot of abusers out there. And chances are at some point an abuser might target you and that's that's just because there are so many out there and if we want to do something about this we don't need to change the victims we need to change our society so they stop producing so many abusers thank you <laughs> and how do you suggest we do that what's your solution i mean what is it about our society that is producing this level of abuse. I mean, clearly patriarchy in my mind is sort of at the, at the, you know, at the core of it, right? We've got it. We're in a system that exalts men in these, in these really sort of ridiculous ways um, and hands them all the power and control. Uh, what do we do? I think you're right that there's a lot of, uh, well, there's so many different factors. Gosh, I'm going to try and pull together a concise <laughs> kind of three or four minute answer here. But really, I need about three or four days to answer that one. Great. Um, we'll have you back. Such Keep a going. <laughs> First of all, why are women disproportionately the victims and survivors and men the perpetrators? That's obviously something to do with the gender and sex inequalities that we still have in our societies that we never got rid of. I know we like to think that we got rid of these some time ago, but there's no evidence that we got rid of them. Plenty of evidence. They're still all over the place. Um, and historically, men have been the ones to be in charge. It's not it's not so long ago that it was considered perfectly reasonable for a husband to beat his wife to correct her if he didn't like how she was behaving. It's historically only a blink of an eye ago that it was perfectly legal to rape your wife. And although we've now criminalized that, um, it's being it's not being prosecuted hardly at all. So I think this uh, women are still um, disproportionately vulnerable because they're 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 often lower earners. Um, and so it's it's it can be easier to take control of somebody when you have so much more money than they do. Um, so women are lower earners. They're usually the ones expected to do the majority of childcare to look after the the elderly parents. You know, they're doing so much care work compared to what men are doing and they're not being paid for that work. So I think there are structural vulnerabilities that are still built into our societies that make women more vulnerable. So just improving gender equality would go a long way to to um to dealing with some of this. I think a lot of perpetrators have quite regressive ideas about gender and about what a husband should do and what a wife should do. Some of them hide that pretty well. I mean, some of them are kind of upfront about their ideas, you know, that men are superior and women should obey, but some hide it pretty well. And uh, like you don't realise they think that way until five years after you married them and they let it slip. Um, 
But yeah, I think that if we could bring up a generation of boys who didn't feel that masculinity was about having control over other people, because at the moment, so much of, of a certain notion of masculinity, a certain variant of masculinity that's still so popular is all about having control over others and dominating others. So if we could move to a different kind of masculinity that was more about being in cooperation with others and both nurturing others and being nurtured yourself, you know, um, that that would go a long way. I think that other intersections of, of, of um, identity also make things uh, more difficult. So disabled people are much more likely to experience domestic abuse than non-disabled people. If disabled people were more financially empowered, more socially empowered, if our societies treated them better and, um, you know, uh, some of the structural barriers for them were removed, I think that would that would help things. Um Perpetrators also draw on racism. You know, they they will perhaps use racism against their victim um, and say, you know, you're useless because you're of this background or you're, you know, making really nasty comments about um, somebody's racial background and their ethnicity. Um, perpetrators, yeah, they, they'll just take any kind of inequality in society and exploit the heck out of it. Um, so... And then I think at a much broader level, I think we still live in societies that really do value dominance and winning and beating the other person. Um, and we value that much more than we value cooperation and nurturing and working together. And you only have to look at our politics to see that, you know, we're still so keen to see one politician get one up on another rather than see two politicians cooperating. Uh, we're still so keen to, you know, to be super adversarial in, in you know, all our walks of life, really. There's this really adversarial culture that we're in. And I think that that is that is a broader issue that is kind of... um overarching of domestic abuse and domestic abuse is just one manifestation of that culture that we live in along with all other kinds of abuse as well like workplace harassment street harassment you know if we didn't live in a culture that's so valued dominance and um getting one up on another person then I, I don't think we would see so much abuse in our kind of our own individual personal lives I think that's, that's such an interesting uh, take, right? That we we do live in a culture where if if you're winning, I'm losing, right? Mm. And so that I have to be, I have to always be winning, otherwise I'm losing. And in yeah. relationships, I love in your Substack you put the you put quotation marks around the word relationship when you're talking about an abusive one because it's not a relationship, right? I love that. Mm you know, in relationships, it is meant to be this sort of equal coming together of two souls and hearts and whatever, right? Um, and minds and spirits to create whatever it is. But if you have one person who truly believes that if we're equal, then I am nothing, right? Because so much of this comes mm. from this fragility. They can't possibly hold our uh our own our power because it means a lack of power for them it's really sad in a you know it's sad 
It is really sad, yes. And and I'm I'm so I'm so blessed in my own relationship um with with my partner who's been by my side through all of this research mm. that that is the that he he doesn't think in that way at all and in fact every success of mine makes him happier and and he's super supportive of my successes. <laughs> Where'd you find that out? Oh, Jesus. I I <laughs> I know. And, you know, and this wasn't because I was smart or because I had a strategy. It was pure luck. And I could have just as easily met an abuser and they would have abused me just like they abuse everyone. So I never want to set myself apart and say, I'm somehow smarter than other people. I'm not. This would have happened to me too had I met an abuser. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's... um, I talked to um, Christine Cocciola about this and, you know, she talks, she's, she's, you know, works in this field as well. And she was like, and it happened to me. She's like, I didn't even know it was happening. And she was Mm -hmm. working as a, as a counselor in this the whole time. I mean, it's crazy. It really can happen to anyone. Oh, it absolutely can. I've also known victims and survivors who were barristers. I mean, like they know the law back to front. They, you know, they are really senior in their profession um, and, and abuser targeted them and it worked. And and that, and do you know why? It's because abuse tactics work. They work. It's nothing to do with the victim being weak. Nothing at all. It's that the abuse tactics work. They are so successful. They can work on a barrister, on a domestic abuse counsellor, on anyone. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Whenever I hear about a protective mom struggling to co-parent with an ex whose alcohol misuse endangers the child, I always recommend Soberlink. If you've been listening for a while, you know how much I love Soberlink. For those of you who are new, welcome and listen up. Soberlink is an alcohol monitoring system that is the most convenient, reliable, and reasonable way for a parent to provide concrete proof that they're not drinking during parenting time. Soberlink uses facial recognition, and it's the only alcohol monitoring system that analyzes and approves or declines identity in real time, meaning that you'll be immediately notified if your co-parent attempts to have someone else use the device. Soberlink also has some of the most high-tech tamper-resistant features on the market, which prevents tampering with the device itself or trying to use alternate air sources like a balloon or an air pump. So basically, any way someone can think of to cheat the system, Soberlink can catch. If someone tests positive for alcohol, Soberlink requires additional tests to confirm the non-compliant results. If a positive test happens, the system's retest cycle begins, allowing the co-parent to retest every 15 minutes, up to six times. Upon request from their in-house compliance department, a drinking evaluation is delivered to you to confirm the non-compliant result. Soberlink has two programs. There's a parenting time only program, and then there's a daily testing program. Both programs operate using scheduled testing. So for example, a testing schedule might be that you ask the co-parent to test before their parenting time and then during parenting time. And this helps you feel confident that your co-parent is parenting sober. And if there is a positive test result, you can write into your agreement that parenting time will be reevaluated. Soberlink's reports are admissible in court. And in fact, Soberlink is recommended by courts in all 50 states and in Canada. If you have any concerns about your child's safety while with the other parent, there is no better way than Soberlink to put your mind at ease. For an exclusive $50 off of your device and to download the resource I created with Soberlink, Checklist for a High Conflict Divorce, visit 
www.soberlink.com slash DSG. And now back to our show. I want to talk about sort of the tactics, right? And I mean, there's so many layers that I want to sort of touch on here, but you have one of your recent substacks. You um, lay out the green, <laughs> green, orange, and red um, relationship flags, right? Mm. And you know, in the green flags are you say in this subsection, I think is really, really important for people to understand is that all relate, like people don't go into relationships waving their red flags around, right? They go in, they lure you in with all the green, green flags, right? Yeah, they do. Um, So you have this great graphic. Can you, can you just explain the different, like, um, colors and how they manifest in these relationships. Yeah. So, um, the green section is the healthy section. It's the section that most people want. And as you say, most perpetrators pretend they're offering in the early days. So if your relationship is green, then you have similar you have there's a fairness and an equality to how the two people treat each other there's an equality of personal freedoms and obligations so the two people have similar obligations towards each other similar liberties and freedoms as each other uh, the two people are held to similar levels of behavioral expectations so there's no double standard you know they're both held to the same sort of behavioral expectations that there's a similar reciprocity of emotional care. So the two people are similarly thoughtful about the feelings of the other person. There's similar equal levels of encouragement. So both parties want to see the other person succeed and they both invest in that. So you're both nurturing and being nurtured. And there's a similar level of truthfulness and tactfulness. So both parties are being open and honest, but they're also doing that in a way where they're being attentive to not causing the other person excessive distress. And if it's green, both people are acting this way. Um, But so often the victim in domestic abuse acts this way, but the perpetrator is doing something very different. So this is where we get onto the two other categories, orange and red. So um, orange is where the abuser has a vast amount of personal freedoms and liberties and they live really selfishly as though they have no obligation to the other party at all. Um, And the red is when the abuser demands excessive levels of control over the other party, causing the other party to have very limited liberty and freedom. So in real life, this is kind of what this will look like. So the coercive controller will have hundreds of rules for his partner or his wife or his children, if he has any, but he sticks to zero rules himself. So the hundreds of rules for his partner and his wife are the red behaviors, but him sticking to zero rules himself are what I call the orange behaviors. Uh, He'll expect his partner or wife um, and any children that he might have to spend time with him at any hour, often causing them great inconvenience. You know, if he wants to have fun, then they have to have fun at that time. Uh, So that's the red because he's taking away their liberty and freedom by demanding their attention whenever he wants it. But for him, he'll often make and break plans to spend time with them and just have no care or thought about the impact that that has. So that's the kind of orange behavior. Um, He'll impose limits on his partner or wife, um, like 
thinking that she's going to be unfaithful to him. So there'll be all this obsession over, you know, you're going to cheat on me and all this making you prove that you're not cheating. So that's red behavior again. But then he'll think very little of actually being unfaithful to her. So a total double standard. And him being unfaithful is the orange behavior because he's, again, he's he's got so much personal liberty and freedom and he's living as though he has no obligation to the person that he committed to, right? That he got into a relationship or a marriage with that he had children with. So yeah, that's what I was kind of meaning by that. Yeah. And yet even as an abuser does all of that, they're going to deny that they're doing any of that. They're going to deny that what they're doing is wrong. They're going to deny that it's unexpected. They're going to claim that the victim is mistaken, out of line for up being upset about all of this, for resisting it. They're going to claim that their behavior is perfectly fine. And this is so confusing for the victim. It's so confusing because the abuser's words just don't match their actions. Right. They're saying that they're being reasonable, but they're not being reasonable. And it's so confusing. People can get confused by this for years, even decades, because you, the, the brain just can't reconcile the words and the actions. And it's so tough. It's so hard. And then, you know, what pe what a lot so many people want to do right and and i think and i want to highlight um as you do in this um substack that orange and red exist simultaneously they are not it's not that one oh, yeah. you know one abuser has orange and another has red like they are inextric inextricably linked <laughs> right you have yeah, yeah, no yeah. power and control and i have all the power and control you have no freedom i have all the freedom those are those are yes. yeah not siloed um, but you know, the, the problem, and I know I experience this and I see this with, with my clients and followers all the time where, uh, they say, well, surely if he, because I, I believe him to be the green, right. I believed what he, the person I, the quote person I fell in love with right? Mm -hmm. I believe that that is actually who he is. I believe that the love and equality and connectedness that we first shared is what he truly wants. Um, and he's doing all of these things to try and actually get this thing that I call love, that he called love to begin with. Um, so I want to explain to him that what all the tactics that he's employing are actually, um, doing the opposite of what I believe he truly wants. And so I'm going to explain this to him. Mm. What do you say to that? Oh, well, my heart goes out to people in those situations. It is so difficult. Um, I'm going to say what I think of that. And it, and it might be quite tough to hear if you're going through this right now. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm saying this in a really gentle way. Um, but Unfortunately, the person who he was pretending to be at the beginning of the relationship and what he was pretending to offer were not real. And um, we really do know this from the experiences of millions of victims and survivors. And we know it from perpetrators when they do get honest about what they've been doing. So in that substack that I wrote about the, the, the green, orange and red, um, I also I talk about what perpetrators um, have said in a perpetrator group. Um, so there was this great article a while ago about um, from someone who used to run a perpetrator group and and he was sharing what the men say in that group. 
So they've all been referred there by the court because they've been violent with their wives. But not all perpetrators are violent. It's just these ones happen to be. But the one, it, it, their profiles are the same, whether they're violent or not. They all want the same thing. They want control. Um, so anyway, these guys, they were sitting around together and they were talking about the benefits of being abusive. And they knew exactly what they were getting out of being abusive. So they loved how everything was on their terms. They knew that everything was on their terms. They knew that they could control how much money you spent, how you brought up your children, when you had sex with them or not, um, who you saw and where you went. They knew that they had all the decision-making power in the relationship. And they knew that they had all that and they wanted it. And they were carrying on being abusive because that's what they wanted. And they also knew that they were getting huge benefits from um, being able to live entirely selfishly themselves. So they were talking about how much they loved, how they didn't have to help you out around the house very much, how they could take off whenever they wanted and they didn't have to consider you, how they didn't have to listen to you, how they didn't have to care much about their kids, how they didn't have to look after their kids much. And they were celebrating as they sat in a group together um, that they that they had all of that. Um, and these were the benefits they saw of being abusive. And the guy who was leading this group, he was like, wow, why on earth would they stop? The benefits they're getting from it in their own minds are so enormous um, that they have no incentive really to stop. So yeah, the guy who they who you fell in love with was not real. And I know that's so horrible and so sad and it has so many implications for you. But I think the sooner we do come to understand that, the the better, because we're starting to take back our own power, I guess, um, and wrestle back reality from this guy who's really distorted reality for a long time. Um, and I would say that, yeah, um, that if you confront an abuser about um, your feelings about their behavior, that's pretty dangerous. Um, you're, you know, they're probably going to punish you in some way. And like, as I said before, that might be violent, violent punishment, but it might be something quite different, like upsetting your children. And also perpetrators often plan many steps ahead. So if they think you're really waking up to what they're doing, they may start planning 10 steps ahead and hoarding money and hiding money so that they can, um, they can, um, rip you off in a divorce you know if they see you're headed in that direction that you're really starting to wake up to them you know they'll start planning how to rip you off in a divorce they'll start planning how to get full custody of the children um you know they'll start perhaps creating a false trail uh, that you're the real abuser so they might start reporting to the police that you're abusing them so that when you finally break free they've got a paper trail that points to you being the abuser not them some perpetrators really are that clever and cunning so I would never suggest confronting them about this because if they've had years and years to show you who they really are, you know, they've been showing you who they really are over those years, then, you know, their more recent behavior over those years is who they really are, not who they were being at the beginning. Um, so you already know who they really are. Um, yeah. And they don't want, want, they don't want what you want and they don't deserve you. Um, and, you deserve so much better than this. So I wouldn't suggest confronting them. And I wouldn't suggest even letting them know that you're starting to wake up to what's really going on. I would suggest contacting a, a domestic abuse support organization for help. I would suggest starting to plan how you're going to escape, starting to put money aside if you possibly can, um, so that you've got the means to escape. 
And one day when you do break free, don't tell them a thing about it. You can you can call them from a safe location where they don't know where you are and tell them after you've left. But but don't tell them while you're still there because the reaction may be really bad uh, because the last thing they want is to lose control over you. They've invested so much in keeping control over you for so many years that um, they don't want to lose that control. And leaving is, is, is the most dangerous time because that's the time you break their control. So it's it's really um it's it's a it's a it's a time to be handled with a lot of caution. But yeah, don't tip them off that you're starting to get wise to what they're doing. That's my advice. Yeah. And it's and it's so hard, right? Because we are in this relationship for love and connection and all of those things. And they're in the relationship for power and control. And to yeah. wrap our brains around that it doesn't compute to us, right? And just as much as it doesn't compute in our brains, love and connection and equality doesn't compute in theirs. Exactly. Yeah. It's almost as though you're in a relationship with with an alien um, that Mm -hmm. you have totally different ways of looking at it, actually. Um, And and they, they can be very good when they sense that they need to turn on the charm with you and making it seem as though they want the same things as you. So one thing that they'll do when they start to figure out that you're that you're getting wise to them is they will they will turn on the charm again the way they did at the beginning of the relationship. They might be nice and attentive and generous for for days, weeks. They might even keep it up for a couple of months until they're convinced that you're properly sucked back in. And then they're more horrible, um, you know, crazy making um, self-esteem destroying behavior will all ramp back up again once they're convinced they've got you back. That's right. And that I, I see that all the time, all the time um, with women in my groups that as soon as they say, you know what, I'm I'm leaving, then it's, oh, my God, no, 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 I love you. I'll do anything. I'll go to therapy. I'll do this. I'll do that. And then, you know, three weeks later, it start you know, it all starts to crumble and crack again. I always say, you know, when a when a victim has the urge to try and get their their spouse, usually their husband, to, quote, understand that what they're doing is abuse, what I say is, honey, it's actually you that needs to understand. It's a horrible thing to have to say, and it's a probably a far worse thing to have to hear, but it's it's you that needs to understand what's happening in the relationship, not them. Yeah, because they already understand it. They do. Um, whereas, whereas very understandably, the victims and survivors have been caught in this kind of weird bubble of unreality um they've been sort of living in this bubble of unreality for you know for probably months or years uh, maybe decades um mm-hmm. where the abuser has you know has made it seem as though everything's normal their behavior is normal um if 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 they're behaving in an upsetting way it's all your fault um you know they deserve all these privileges you don't um they've you know, everyone has to tiptoe around to keep them happy, but 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 they don't care how you feel. And, you know, when you're upset about it, then there's no care from them about that. So they've been living in this bubble of unreality for a long, 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 long time. It's really hard to cut through that. Um, it's really hard to see the reality of what's going on. It's such a part of the journey of breaking free to start cutting through that unreality that they've kind of wrapped you in and submerged you in. Uh, So the more you can start to really establish a a kind of more accurate, realistic lens on what's been going on, um, the better and the more you'll be able to um, 
be aware of what you're going to be up against when when you do leave because um when you do leave that there, there's going to be an ongoing struggle uh you know in the divorce um over the children and you need to know who you are really up against and what they're really capable of in order to be effective in that struggle so i mean i've i've i've, I've known victims who who when they've left um the abuser did awful things to them before they left but when they left they were kind of hoping that he'd be nice to them and that he was trustworthy um and it's and that's because they hadn't yet fully computed who he was and what he was capable of so i think we all need a kind of internal working model of this is who this person really is and this is what they're really capable of and base it not on what they say but on what they've done you know, so look at their actions and what their actions tell you they are capable of, and uh, if we and try and react to that model, not who they're pretending to be. This is so um, prevalent with you know because then we get into post-separation abuse, and then we get yeah. once you understand that this is the mindset, this is this is the way this this kind of personality functions. You know, once they've lost control of you in the intimate relationship then they're going to use every other tool at their disposal to try and control and destroy you, um, usually being the court system, the, your children, right? Um, and that's when it gets so, so, so dangerous. And then you're they're entering into a system, the court system, the, certainly the family court system, that isn't really educated about this and doesn't really understand how this works. Yeah. All of that. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I always say that it's so in, it's so crazy what victims and survivors have to go through because they've already been through, you know, more than humans should ever be enduring in the relationship. And when they get out, you just want it to be over for them. You want them to have some peace and, and their freedom. And occasionally that happens, but I think the more common experience, especially if they're a shared children, is that you will have to to keep dealing with their rubbish for many more years. Um, and some victims and survivors say that that it that they 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 really appreciate that they did get out, that they would not give up their new freedom that they have away from the perpetrator for anything. And they say, you know, it was really worth it to get out, even with the post-separation abuse. It's so worth it just to have my freedom back to not be being driven crazy, to not be being, you know, um, monitored and constrained every minute of the day. Um, but some victims and survivors um, say that if they'd have known how the, the, how bad the post-separation abuse was going to be they would have stayed at least until their children were older and I think that's a heartbreaking um, indictment of how our systems are failing that people would find it preferable to to have stayed because our systems are, are just so poor and and so weak at stopping these perpetrators post-separation so uh, yeah, I, I never want to sugarcoat it for people. I don't want to be an advocate of like a cheerleader of, you know, leaving it, it'll all be okay. I want to be yeah. realistic with people that for some people they do, that they are really pleased they left and for other people, they are not so pleased that they left. Um, it kind of depends what happens afterwards. So it's a bit of a roll of the dice. And also, um, I think it depends on, on you know, when, whether you were lucky or unlucky in the supports that you encountered. 
So, yeah, post-separation abuse can can break down to a few things, actually. Um, there's a great piece of research by, a, by a, an American called um, Catherine Spearman and her colleagues, and they pointed out that there were five main facets of legal abuse. Number one, legal abuse. So, you know, this is keeping you in the courts one way or another for years to drain your money and drain your resources and drain you psychologically. Um, and that can involve taking the children from you in, in family court and, and all of that. Uh, there's economic abuse. So, you know, not paying the child maintenance and, um, you know, ripping you off in your divorce um, and refusing to sell houses that you share between you and, and all this sort of thing. Threats and endangerment to children. So this is when they are spending time with your children, they're being really scary about it. They're not returning your children when they say they will. They are leaving the children in dangerous situations when they're there, perhaps exposing them to illegal gun displays or watching pornography in front of them or taking drugs in front of them or leaving them unsupervised at too young an age or, you know, physically or sexually or psychologically abusing the children while they're in the perpetrator's, um, while they're in the perpetrator's care. Then there's the isolation and discrediting. So they will discredit you to your community. They will try and get your community to turn against you. Um, they will pretend that you are the one who, who's been in the wrong, that you're the real abuser, that you're crazy, that you're vindictive, and that they are Mr. Nice Guy, Mr. Wonderful, Mr. Hero. And unfortunately, lots of people fall for this and then support the abuser rather than the victim. Yeah. And then the final one, number five, is harassment and stalking. So, you know, they send you a million messages. They sit outside your house. They put trackers on you to find out where you are post-separation, or they put trackers on the children um this just intrusion into your into your new life um so these are the five kinds of post-separation abuse that are, are most common and, and some people experience one or more of them and some people all five horrifically um and it's it's so hard because you you've already been through so much and now you're having to deal with all of this too and anyone who goes through this and i say this in my most recent blog anyone who goes through this who is still functioning at all i mean you are a hero and, okay. I, and i don't mean you have to be functioning well i don't mean that you have to be getting out of bed i don't mean that you have to look glamorous or be earning money i don't mean any of that i just mean you are still alive um if you are still alive when you're going through all of this you are a hero because it is is more than any human should ever be enduring. That's so true. That's so true. That's so true. And I and I know a lot of people listening just sort of took a deep breath, <laughs> right? Or like sighed out, you know, some feeling of you know uh, receiving a feeling of being sort of seen and understood. And I think it's so important. I think that's you know one of the most important things is that we feel seen and understood and that like, yeah, it is a goddamn miracle that I'm still alive and I'm still functioning. And I'm like, you know, my God, I like had a glass of water today. That's a fucking win. <laughs> you know? Like, yes. It is. It is. If you got three hours sleep, that's even better. Right. 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 I, I, you know, I made my kids breakfast. I got them to school and then I collapsed. Right. Like that's great. You're winning. Before we go, I want to touch on prob probably about to open a, an enormous can of worms, the criminalization of coercive control and how difficult mm. that has been, certainly in the U.S. I think we have five states, maybe a sixth is is um, on its way now, maybe, but five states that have codified it. 
Um, no states in the U.S. have criminalized it, but the, it has been criminalized in the U.K. Um, and I think in Italy and other places, I, I, you probably know better off the top of your head than I do. But um, how, how have you seen that working? Um, so, yeah, in the UK, we, well, in England and Wales, which is most of the UK, but there's also Scotland and Northern Ireland. Um, right. But in England and Wales, we um, we did criminalise at the end of 2015. Um, it's been very slow going. In my experience, the the police seem to be more willing to add coercive control as a charge when there's already been assault or rape or something like that. Um, rather than to to prosecute someone for coercive control alone. I think there's there's many difficulties around the police and the courts enforcing it because, firstly, a lot of police officers are abusers themselves. Right. Um, and we know that they're <laughs> not held accountable for that. Right. And they're not, right. uh, they're not expelled from their police forces when this behaviour comes to light too often. Um, I believe in the US, um, 40% of domestically violent um, male police officers are retained on the police force. I think I've got that statistic right. Uh, you, uh, that's that's not helping. The courts are not trained. I don't know what percentage of the judges are perpetrators. Um, I wouldn't like to, to even begin to guess, but obviously some of them are going to be because perpetrators are in every profession. And I think perpetrators love power and control and a bit, you know uh, jobs that give them a great deal of power and control are very appealing to them. So there might be a higher percentage of perpetrators as judges than as, you know, botanists, let's say, yeah. you know, people who love, look after plants and flowers. Right. I probably just massacred what a botanist is. So apologies. No, to I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> so in the UK, uh, we have a couple of million victims of domestic abuse per year. But the last time I looked, there was about 300 convictions for coercive control in a year. So we are not convicting the vast, vast, vast majority of these coercive controllers. It's only the tiniest faction of them who are who are actually getting this on their criminal record and facing a little bit of a punishment for it. I think laws are good, and I think laws laws can be useful in that they set out what is acceptable and what's unacceptable. You know, they in a society they they can serve that positive function but they're only as good as people who are willing to enforce them and in the united kingdom we just moved to make post-separation coercive control a crime too we didn't do that right away and it's only just become a crime like in april oh wow i know that yeah and, and it's a good thing but i know of victims and survivors who are trying to get the police to prosecute for post-separation coercive control and they're meeting total bit walls you know the police are are just saying to them oh you know the, this isn't a crime what you're describing or it doesn't meet the criteria and they're going no it does look here are the guidance this is what he's done and they're like no we're not interested go away so it's only as and I'm, I'm sure there have been one or two successful prosecutions for it, but I'm, I'm hearing a lot of dissatisfaction from the survivors who get in touch with me, which, of course, may not be a representative group, but um, but it is interesting to hear from them, certainly, um, yeah. and important to hear from them. So I think I think it's a good thing to try to criminalise. At least it gets it on the on the on the statute it's only as good as the people willing to enforce it also one thing that i know people have been worried about is that male perpetrators will get their female victims convicted of coercive control because that thing the perpetrators do that they're so clever at of making you seem like the abuser and creating false paper trails in the uk that doesn't really seem to have happened because 
like more than 95% of the convicted perpetrators are males. So it doesn't seem like a, a, a large number of women are being caught up in this and being falsely convicted of coercive control, which is a positive thing. But I, I don't know if that would hold true in other countries, but at least in the UK, it doesn't seem to have backfired in that way. I think our main problem is just that it's not being enforced enough. I wonder if, though, even the threat of being accused then has uh, victims back off, right? That, yeah. right? Like if if you're being um, accused of of abuse yourself, and then you get you get scared that like, oh, I'm going to have to go to court, and it's going to be he says, she says, and we know that statistically speaking, men are believed far more than women are believed, then. I'm going to get into court and nobody's going to believe me anyway. So I may as well just back off the whole thing. Well, I guess you, you don't have to go down the court route. Um, it, it, you know, it, you don't, you don't necessarily have to try to get them prosecuted in order to leave them. I would say that the two things don't always go hand in hand. And, and tragically, the, the justice system works so poorly for, for women who've been abused and hurt by men that so many women don't want to go anywhere near the justice system at all. I mean, the vast majority of people who've been raped don't want to go anywhere near the justice system because they know it's going to not work for them. And, and of course, many of them would have been raped in relationships rather than, you know, being raped by a stranger, which is much rarer. Um, and so, um, yeah, I know, I know that the justice system is is in such disarray. Uh, again, this is coming back to one of the things that needs to improve. Um, you know, we talked about what would make this better. If perpetrators were really fearful that they were going to get caught, I mean, it it really would stop so much of the behaviour. I mean, why is it that very few people engage in armed robbery of banks? Because they think that there's a high chance they're not going to get away with it, right? They think there's a high chance right. there's going to be a massive police response and they're going to be caught. So most people wouldn't dare go and do an armed robbery of a bank. If only domestic abusers were that scared, wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't it? But, you know, and yet here we are, certainly in the United States, and we have, you know, uh, somebody who has been indicted now, how how many times <laughs> criminal charges, who's going to be, you know, uh, running for president again, who is running for president again, and will probably be the nominee, right? This is, you know, this is what we this is what we know in the US, you can be accused of sexual assault and still be president. So like, why am I going to what, you know what makes me think i'm going to win in court um oh so much yeah. so yeah i think so i would just say to victims and survivors you know yes. if you're feeling in despair and you're feeling like <laughs> it's it's really difficult and you're really depressed about the state of the world and about how you've been treated i just want to say you have every every right to feel that way because you have been appallingly treated. You are not in a society that was designed, always willing to look after you and to give you justice. And it's really, really unfair. So if you're feeling bad about that, oh my God, you have every right to feel bad about that. Um, right. You're not crazy. You're not being unreasonable. You're not in the wrong. The systems are not working for you. That's right. It's the systems. It's the systems. There's a book, isn't there, called, um, you know, uh, don't don't fix i can't remember the title exactly but it's like fix the systems not the victims something like oh, that that's um, a great title yeah 
Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It really is. And, and there is support. Like that is why we need more advocacy and support groups and all, and the work, the amazing work that you're doing. Um, because, you know, there are people out there who do believe you, who do understand what you're going through and can at least help with your, um, perspective, your sort of psychological well-being, um, and all of that to help yes. as you navigate through these systems that are designed, um, not, not designed to support you in the way that you need it. Seek any support you can, um, right. because it, it, it is a sanity saver. It really, you know, it does make a difference. Um, so yeah, uh, seek any support that you can, anyone who you can find that gets this, you know, get, you know, they're, they're really valuable in your life. If, if at all possible, fill your life with people who get this and try and eject as many people who don't get it out of your life as needed. Um, if, you know, if that's viable, uh, but yes, support does make a big difference in this, in this nightmarish situation. So, yeah. Absolutely. Dr. Emma Katz, I am so incredibly grateful, um, for your wisdom, for the work that you do in the world and for coming on to my podcast to have this conversation. It's been such a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's, it's been great to, to chat with you. And I really hope that this is useful for your listeners um, and that they've got something out of this. I really hope so. Oh, I'm sure they have. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.